The Guardian. Friday Jabor here, sitting down with Michael Safi for the first time today, isn't it? That's right. Previous days, you've been sitting beside me in the coronial inquest into the deaths of Katrina Dawson and Tory Johnson and Manharon Monis. Today was the first time you weren't there with me. Unfortunately, the uh, demands of journalism meant I had to be elsewhere, so we just sent the A-team. Uh, Bridie, what did, what did I miss today? Well, this morning we heard more from mental health workers as we did yesterday. So we spent the morning on his mental health. We heard from two clinical nurses who assessed him when he was charged with the range of sexual assault charges as well as the accessory to murder. So you get assessed to see if you could be a risk to anyone around you or yourself, i.e. if you you might be becoming suicidal because you're facing a lengthy jail sentence and to see how comfortable they are with jail. And we also heard from another psychologist who spoke to him and then the afternoon was spent listening to Detective Senior Constable Murray Northey and he talked about Monis's electronic life. So it was quite it, it was a day full of small details about Monis the man and Monis's world and how he lived his life. And so yesterday we heard what seemed to be kind of clashing impressions from the two psychiatrists. One found him to be depressed but to show no signs of schizophrenia. The other one was was pretty adamant that it was a case of, of chronic um, schizophrenia. What did we hear from the psychs today? More clashing, more more clashing views. So the two clinical nurses they that assessed him, I think, within a couple of weeks of each other, or at least a couple of months, had very different assessments. One said that he needed to go to a, a psychiatrist and be further assessed. And she's actually the first witness I have heard say that she was intimidated by him. Most witnesses, well, all witnesses have used the words polite and courteous. And she's the first one to get up and say that she felt intimidated by him, perhaps even threatened when she was doing the um, interview with him and she brought up his charges. So where, where are we now? I mean, when is this happening? Is this 2014? Yes. So, sorry, sorry. This is April 2014. Well, that's interesting. So we're getting close to when he seems to snap and, and, and pull and yes. hold up the Cafe, yeah, and yeah. Yes, we are getting closer to that. So it's April 2014. He gets brought in to Silverwater for this assessment. She brings up his charges. You know, how are you feeling about these charges? He stands up in this very small room and we've heard before he's a very big man. This was a small older woman. Stands up, tries to leave the room, says, I didn't do it. It's nothing to do with me. I don't know why you're talking to me about this. And she managed to calm him. She, she has the tools to calm him. But she said that she had been intimidated and she referred him for further psychiatric assessment. But the other clinical nurse who examined him, a man this time, um, he didn't have his file. So he didn't know the charges that Monis was facing. Monis lied about his charges, said they were for common assault. And when asked if he had ever seen a psychiatrist before, ever seen a psychologist, ever been on medication, nope. Nope, nope. Mm, and mm. of course, we heard yesterday he had been on medication for chronic schizophrenia and he had seen other psychiatrists. He also, and I found this interesting, asked him a list of questions to try to establish if he was paranoid or de- delusional. And he specifically asked him, without being aware of Monis's history at all, do you ever feel like you're being watched? Do you think the police are watching you? Do you think the CIA is watching you? And Monis answered no to every single one of those questions. So with that evaluation, he was put down as having stable mental health and no concerns whatsoever. Mm. Again, we get this sense of this guy, of not being able to decide whether this guy is troubled or sort of troubled like a fox, like kind of aware of the way he's coming across to people. Um, the fact that he lied to that second nurse suggests that he's he has the capacity to feel shame, if nothing else. I mean, he's a guy who knows when he's done something wrong or when something might look bad. Or- yeah, I, it could be shame. I also thought another... 
another part of it is we've definitely heard that he hates people knowing information about himself. He won't tell his psych, his psychologist even about each other, let alone about his family. He lies about his history all the time. And I wondered if it was just another extension of that about him not liking people knowing any information about himself. And so, what about that police officer who talked about his electronic life? I mean, firstly, was it a kind of a vibrant electronic life? Did he spend a lot of time on social media? No, no, not at all. It was, um, it was the electronic life you would expect of a man in their late forties, or like it seemed at some points that he he only barely knew how to use the internet. Um, and they read out posts from his website, which we have seen before in the media, his posts on Twitter, they read out his first tweets, which is something like, I am new to this Twitter. I am wishing to engage. Please, Muslim brothers and sisters, connect with me. That sort of like talking into empty space stuff. But they also read out emails. And this, um, this I think, was one of, one of the parts of today that I was very taken with and um, which really made me sit up and watch. They read out emails between um, him and his daughter in Iran, and she sent this email to him last year at the beginning of last year, and it's just, it was the sort of communication any daughter has with her dad. Hey, Dad, Happy New Year. How are you? Uh, and she says in it, I've gotten married. I married the man that you suggest. I had a few offers of marriage, but I went with your advice, and I married a man who's willing to come to um, Australia and see you with me. And then towards the end of the email, she says, I just want to spend the rest of my life next to you. God, that is, I mean, yeah. that is so sad. I won't intrude on your private life. And it it was sad. It was, it was a girl or a woman missing her dad. She mm. missed her dad. And I felt in it as well, like he, he's become, man, Haron Monas has become such an abstract figure for us. I think in the way that any real type of public figure does become a sort of abstract person to you, you know, the prime minister's an abstract person, the queen, all that. You don't actually think about their inner lives that much. And this is sort of the first time at, during the inquest when you really, you saw the humanity in him and you saw someone who loved him and really uh, remembered and took note that he was someone, some people's father mm. and more than just this gunman in the siege whose motivations we are trying to get to the bottom of. Yeah, and that there are people out there for whom Manharon Monas is more than a caricature or someone to be studied. He's, he's you know, a living, breathing person. And you made, when I was talking to you about this before, you were making the point about his path of destruction going back so much further. Yeah, yeah, all this weirdness and all this pain that he leaves in his, you know, what is it, nearly 20 years in Australia, that must stretch all the way back to, to Iran. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. people hurting in, hurting in Iran who miss him. It, and, it was, and that was the most revealing thing, I think, from his electronic life. All the rest was things that we, we sort of already knew about him, um, you know, emailing Tony Abbott, challenging him to a live debate. But and, significantly, there was something that wasn't there in his electronic life, and that was any contact with Islamic State. Oh, yes. Conf- again, today, the police still have found no evidence of any direct electronic contact with Islamic State. Uh, they were very careful in their wording today, no direct electronic contact, but, I mean, how else would he be contacting someone? Yeah, which is kind of interesting in, I mean, the fact that they couldn't find any because it doesn't seem to be that hard to contact someone from Islamic State. I mean, these guys have apparently hundreds of thousands of, of Twitter accounts. They're, they're all over Facebook. Um if he's out there spouting this kind of thing, I'm I'm a little surprised that no one got in touch with him and said, you know, what have you what are your views on this? What do you think of what's happening in Syria? It's it seems odd to me that 
you know, maybe they too recognized him as someone who was a little bit unhinged, someone who probably you don't really want on your side. Well, maybe they didn't even notice him. We did hear in the inquest today he had 12 followers on Twitter. Wow, okay. It went up to 898 post the siege. I say we were both, we were both de- one of them. One yeah, of yeah. The, yeah. I think we, we were among them. But um, so he had 12 followers. How many people do you think were reading his website? I mean, how prolific was it really? I, don't, I like it is. It is also entirely possible that they just didn't. You know, enough people though to make a, na- a complaint to the National That's Security true, Hotline. But still. how many eighteen or something complaints wasn't there to yeah, the National Security yeah, Hotline yeah. about what he was? That's posting right. There? That's right. Yeah, um, it's true. And I guess it also raises the question: if the guy is, as you say, a kind of middle-aged man on the internet. The f- I mean, I think of my my parents; they couldn't make a website. I don't know how how he managed to make one and sort of sustain it and post to it regularly and. There's, there's, there's mysteries about this guy. Yeah, that's true, actually. Um, maybe he just went through a normal blogging thing. And, you know, and it's not like he has kids that he's in regular contact with him to help him with that sort of mm-hmm. stuff like our fathers would be asking us to do. Yes, exactly. Um, so, we're four days now into the inquest. Bridie, do you think it's fulfilling its aims? What are, you, what are some of your impressions so far? I think it's very thorough. I think obviously a lot of work and research has been done. I, you know, we're, we're three or four days into what is probably going to stretch into maybe perhaps eight weeks of hearings over a year. Well, can, I, can I say this? It, it, have, have your initial impressions about what happened that day, have they been shifted at all so far? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But also I do feel like I'm learning a lot and I'm learning more about Manharon Monas, but we haven't even got to that cafe. And I do think that it's vital that they do this much research on the men because fundamental to so many questions about this siege, why did it happen? Can it be prevented? Could anything have been done to stop him walking in there? Should he even questions like, should he have been on bail? Was it a terrorist act? Do our laws in that area need to change as well? It all boils down to his motivation and getting to the bottom. And I think that is one of the most important questions in this in- inquest where the answers to so many other questions will stem from is why did he walk into the cafe that day with the gun? Yeah. And I think that going back through his emails and hearing things about him lying to Iran and his customs official and like, you know, getting a sense of his personality is definitely key to getting to the motivation. So I think it is important work. It's slightly tedious at times, but it is important work that's been done. I think on the back of what we've heard, I mean, to my mind at least, he becomes less menacing in some way. I mean, when you think of a terrorist, you think of someone who's sort of cold, calculating, they kind of reduce individuals to sort of uh, an abstraction in their politics. Like, you know, these are just people who need to be sacrificed f- sacrificed for my bigger cause. And I think that's what makes terrorism scary is this sense that you'll be reduced to an abstraction in someone else's eyes. But I think with Monis, given what we're learning about his troubled history, I mean, I'm less convinced than ever that this guy is is a terrorist in the sort of way we normally imagine a terrorist to be. Oh, absolutely. But I think I came to this inquest, I think both of us came to this inquest and any journalist would come to this inquest not having made up your mind on that. I, I don't think that we were thinking he was a terrorist when this inquest started. Maybe we weren't thinking he wasn't a terrorist either. But I think that you're right. He does become less menacing. And there are even times during this, when you're hearing so much about someone's life and all about their interactions, there are times when you do feel sorry for the man. And I think that that can be a surprising emotion at times, feeling sorry for someone who went into a cafe of total strangers to himself and ter- he did terrorise them, whether he's a terrorist or not, he did terrorise these people. Did you find, I mean, you said today that that email was the first time, the email from his daughter was the first time where you felt a sense of, um, I suppose, 
empathy or he kind of became more whole to you he became more yeah more humane yeah is, is that is that something you felt sort of other journos in the room felt or is was that i mean did you feel the, the mood change at all it was very very silent after so in in the media room you can sometimes get a couple of jokes being cracked about certain things and you know his first tweets and all that type of thing where it's obviously doesn't know how to use twitter but after those emails were read out I don't know how the other journalists were feeling, but it was just stone silent. Mm. Stone silent. Everyone was very, very quiet after those emails had been read out. Yeah. And I suppose, that, you know, the mood is going to kind of ebb and flow and I imagine it's going to be, I think, you know, that, look, it's not jovial, but that sort of sense of detachment from it, I'm sure will be much harder to sustain for people who are reporting on it by the time we actually get to the hostages and we start to hear from them and their personal stories. And I think that's when, you know, this will kind of... The, the, the sense of urgency around this will suddenly spike again. Yes. And ju- just like with any inquiry, like you and I have covered um, royal commissions to child sex abuse and things like that. And with any inquiry, when the victims get up there, it is, you know, uh, it does, it changes the whole mood of the place. It changes the way that you are reporting. Some people quite reasonably can get quite upset listening to it as well. And I think that that, that segment when the hostages are there are going to be a very different – is going to be a very different segment to this one. And we're hearing from people who barely knew Monitz and they're just telling anecdotes about him and we're going through very forensically and very up until this point emotionally detached as well. Mm. This is, you know, on, on a much lighter note, but I, I was flicking through uh, the statement of Angelo Mamolo, who was the lead police investigator of the siege. And this, this stuck with me. Of the many kind of shell businesses that, that Monis was involved in, um, th- these were things like uh, Hezbollah Australia and Dar al-Fatwa, which was a spiritual and Islamic consultation service. But get this, there was one that was called Australian Halal Watch, so my question is, is Monus actually a secret halal truther? Is that something that we're going to dig into next week? Oh, my God. What a weird band of merry men and women that is I, um, for, for him to join, like, from all these different paths and all these different walks of life I'd love to see him show up to that first meeting of the kind of anti-halal brigade. I don't think that would or go Or the Senate well. inquiry to give evidence about how he thinks that the industry is corrupt. We should let Cory Bernardi know about this important <laughs> development. Um on that note, we have a whole week about Manhow and Monus again next week. Is there anything you're looking forward to in particular? I would like to hear from someone who knew him socially. And it, so we, we do have the witness list, but we're not told of the relate. Usually we're not told of the relations that the witnesses have to Monus until the morning. I really want to hear from someone who, know, who knew him socially mm. and knew him on a social level. That is what I'm very interested in. Yeah, in we, and we've heard from those people in the media. We heard from um, one gentleman, Jamal Dawood, who's a you know a community activist. And he said that he went to barbecues with Manhar on Monus and that uh, they visited Villawood Detention Centre together. He was very clear they weren't friends. They were sort of uh, you know distant associates for a brief time. But, you know, the fact that these guys haven't appeared on the list yet kind of makes you wonder whether, um, you know, what direction this, you know, this inquest is taking. Well, it struck me that I thought maybe they just it had found it very difficult to find people who knew him socially. Mm. And we, it doesn't look like we're not going to hear from any of the women who, who knew him well or were intimate with him for a range of legal and personal reasons. So I'm just wondering, can we find from his, what, 16, 17 years in Australia – can we find a single friend? And there was actually, there was one thing that, again, in this uh, police file that was flagged. This file's from uh, January, so hopefully by now it might feature, but it's that uh, the police were trying to crack Monis's Facebook page. Uh, 
it says they were unsuccessful, but they were hoping that it would happen in the next few weeks. I mean, so hopefully there, there's, you know, a few more clues to sort of unpacking who this guy was. So that that's something to look out for for next oh, week. That is, yeah, in, in the electronic media today, we, we heard his emails and we heard his Twitter but I'm, and we and his YouTube account, but I'm not sure that we saw actual posts to Facebook. Mm, interesting, actually, that, that if – I mean, that might suggest that Facebook still haven't, give, haven't given them access, which is, which is fascinating. That even with something, you know, this big, there's, there's Facebook's in no rush to allow Australian investigators in. If any of that sounds intriguing to you, join us again from Monday next week for our daily recaps. See you next week. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio. 